Hello, it's John Dennis on Thursday the 11th of March. Today, authorities have apologised to a family repeatedly raped by the father. There was a culture of having a quiet word. The agencies would pass information verbally or informally, but no one actually made the formal action that needed to be made. The Equality's watchdog is to name and shame police forces who use stop-and-search powers against a disproportionate number of people from ethnic minorities. The one which stands out to the Commission is the Metropolitan Police, which is also Britain's biggest force, which uses the power far more frequently than other forces in urban areas. The American response to a claim by a former head of MI5 that US agents kept the British in the dark about their mistreatment of terror suspect prisoners. MI5 officers on the ground in the field doing things which they know are sort of pretty controversial to put it mildly. They don't want to tell their bosses about it, let alone ministers, which of course is a possibility. And we hear from the author of a unique audit of British wildlife that shows how fast species are becoming extinct. 492 English species have gone extinct in the last 2,000 years and most of them in the last two centuries. First, our top story. Daughters who were repeatedly raped by a Sheffield man whose abuse had echoes of the case in Austria of Joseph Fritzl have received an apology from local authorities. Social services in Sheffield and Lincolnshire failed to protect the women from their father, whose incest and physical abuse was carried out over 35 years. The 57-year-old man, who can't be identified, was jailed for life in November 2008. He repeatedly impregnated two daughters, referred to as M and N, to preserve their anonymity. They gave birth to nine children. The apology came as the executive summary into a serious case review was published. It was written by Professor Pat Cantrill. There are numerous opportunities which men missed individually and collectively. And there was an unrealistic optimism about the cooperation of the parents and the progress of the children. The injuries were, that were identified should have resulted in the children being moved to a place of safety. On 23 separate occasions from 1998 to 2005, adults M&N were specifically asked about the paternity of their children by various organisations and professionals. Professionals considered that there was not enough evidence to prove that the children that were being born to the women, in fact, were being fathered by their own father. By 1997, adults M&N had either lost nine babies or pregnancies, or they had uh, lost the pregnancies as a result of genetic disorders. Nearly all of the services involved with this family suspected or were aware of the suspicions of incest taking place between adults R, M and N. There was a culture of having a quiet word. The agencies would pass information verbally or informally, but no one took the formal action that needed to be made. There was physical violence still towards adult m and during this period, and any attempt made by them to gain help from services was either not listened to or not investigated further. 
Professor Pat Cantrell. Well, in 2008, when this man was sentenced, the judge said questions would have to be asked as to what social care professionals were doing for the last 20 years. Helen Carter was in Derby to hear the apology yesterday. I asked her whether we now know the answer to that. Unfortunately, the children weren't listened to by um, the professionals and the father was allowed to continue his abuse for a number of years. Um, The family were involved with 28 different agencies, more than 100 professionals between um, 1975 and 2008, and there was ample opportunity to, um, to get help for them, but no help was forthcoming. The serious case review summary, they apologised profusely and unreservedly to the victims for not protecting them. They made 128 recommendations in the 1,000-page report, um, many of which have already been implemented, so hopefully it wouldn't happen again. What are the recommendations? What are the main ones? Sharing information among professionals, proper record-keeping and support for professionals to challenge because part of the problem was the abuser was very hostile and aggressive towards professionals. He didn't know how to deal with him, and they, you know, they were trying to keep him on side. So their, their expectations of his behaviour were very high, and you know, unfortunately, they did, as I say, they didn't listen to the children. They admit that, that they didn't listen to the children and take their concerns on board. Additionally, um, there were concerns on the children at school. There were long periods of absences from school. The children were in a a poor state of hygiene, there were not explained injuries which, you know, the hospital and ambulance services expressed concern. These weren't followed up, or if they were followed up, nothing was done. Have any social services or, or police been disciplined about this? Absolutely nobody. Nobody has been disciplined, nobody has been sacked. They were talking about a collective responsibility. Uh, Professor Pat Cantrell, who was the independent author of the serious case review, um, said that things were missed individually and collectively. So, you know, the various authorities, the police, social services, local authorities, have taken collective responsibility. So there are no specific social workers or individuals who have been blamed for not, for not listening. It's a collective responsibility. Helen Carter. Well, Patrick Butler, the editor of Society Guardian, is here. Patrick, what's your response to this? Well, this particular report, I think, is astonishing, uh, not just because of... Uh, of the horror of what was happening within the family, but the scale of uh, the abuse that went on so long, uh, for 35 years, and throughout that time the family were being monitored by multiple uh, welfare agencies um, across two counties, and no one intervened. The scale of it is extraordinary. A hundred professionals were um, assigned to this case, and yet it went undetected. I think the interesting thing about the professionals is that the report doesn't say that the professionals were uh, lazy or incompetent or inexperienced or didn't have the right training. What the report says is they had all those things. Um, The failings were less professional or institutional as uh, perhaps more human failings. This report came up with the term stuck professional, which is very interesting because uh, it it kind of describes... uh, uh, a state of mind that the profession, a collective state of mind that the professionals were in. Often these reports talk about interagency working or the fact uh, communications breakdowns, and it's often it's seen as structural flaws in child protection services. The idea of the stuck professional is is kind of describing a psychology really, where um, where when professionals uh, are confronted with something this horrific, uh, this complex 
they kind of feel disempowered and helpless and they they kind of switch off. And in this case, the stuck professionals, rather than um, take confront this abuse head on and be decisive, they you could actually see how they they diverted their energies um, into pro- providing coping mechanisms for the family. So you know you couldn't fault the professionals for arranging their multiple house moves that the family were making. You know in terms of providing support for these uh, poor children. All that was happening, but what wasn't happening was the authoritative intervention that would have uh, stopped this, these horrific events happening at a much earlier stage. The family moved 67 times during this period. Why was that? To avoid detection? It, in many of these cases, it's common that the abusing family uh, uh, will take quite often quite extreme steps to avoid intervention uh, and, and being detected. Uh, what this family did, uh, in common with many other cases, was uh, a, a combination of being aggressive and intimidatory to professionals who, who attempted to, to talk to them about what was going on. At other times, they would be utterly charming and beguiling and pretend to cooperate with the professionals. The house moving, the serial house moving, is, is quite a common strategy that's used. The more you, you, the more you move, uh, the more chaotic uh, you, you, your lifestyle, the harder it is for agencies to keep tabs on you. Uh, having said that, 67 house moves in 35 years is, uh, is pretty extreme. Patrick Butler, and there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash society. Also on The Guardian's website, Deborah Orr on Labour's handling of the issue of immigration. Have your say at guardian.co.uk slash comment is free. Julian Temple discusses his new film, Requiem for Detroit. He says the situation there is like a man-made Katrina, guardian.co.uk slash film. And Tim Dowling takes a dangerous dog for a walk, guardian.co.uk slash g2. Now here's Tom Clark with details of how you can join the audience for our Politics Weekly podcast. I'm Tom Clark, presenter of Politics Weekly, and next week our show goes on the road in the run-up to the election. First stop is Tuesday in Manchester, where we'll record our programme in front of a live studio audience. Holly Toynbee, Michael White and John Harris will be on the panel, so come along and pitch questions to them and hear what they've got to say about the big issues as Britain goes to the polls. Tickets are £5. Visit www.guardian.co.uk forward slash politics to buy your tickets. Americans have reacted with bemusement to claims by a former British intelligence chief that US agencies concealed the truth about their torture of terror suspects. Eliza Manningham-Buller says she only found out that the alleged 9-11 mastermind Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was waterboarded after her retirement as head of MI5 in 2007. Chris McGreal in our Washington office has been gauging the American reaction. Largely bafflement. Uh, Many people find it hard to believe that uh, MI5 uh, at the late stage of 2007 still wasn't aware. Um, Certainly she was talking about a specific case and and the instance of a a specific figure of 160 waterboardings. Um, But I think the the broader issue is is one of if MI5, the head of MI5, 
didn't know. Uh, she certainly should have. There was plenty of information. There had been uh, public criticism, uh, criticism in Congress, uh, questions asked. And certainly the view here in, within people on the edge of the intelligence community is that MI5 was close enough to the broader process and MI6 it's as well um, of interrogations in, in various places, Guantanamo, Bagram Air Base, elsewhere, uh, that they would certainly, uh, at the very least, have, have got a, a sense of many of these interrogations. Manning and Buller said that the British government had lodged protests with the US about its treatment of detainees. Uh, can you shed any light on that? Well, there hasn't been any official response to that. The um, Americans, as we know in the past, have never acknowledged, uh, at least the previous administration, did not acknowledge that it actually uh, tortured. Uh, it said everything that was done was uh, within the legal bounds. This administration has questioned that. Um, but those those protests at the time, at uh, the time of the previous Republican government, um, would have been met with assertions that everything was within US and international law. Chris McGreal. Well, Manning and Buller made her claims after a speech at the House of Lords. In the audience was the Guardian's security correspondent, Richard Norton Taylor. Her general speech was quite sort of dull, really, and came out of, <laughs> full of platitudes. But then she had questions and answers. And she dropped what we thought one or two, if not bombshells, certainly kind of surprising claims. She said, for example, uh, well, one interesting thing, she, uh, MI5, uh, or rather ministers on behalf of MI5, had complained to the Americans when uh, the British had learned that the Americans were torturing people. Now, the question is, uh, how long did that take? She wouldn't say, she wouldn't say when that happened, because it was quite clear from what was, what was said in the American press, apart from anything else, the American press, by sort of 2000 and early 2002, shortly after 9-11, when the Americans were uh, detaining all these people and sending them to Guantanamo Bay and basically rendering around the world secret, secret prisons and so on, and torturing them indeed. That all came out in early 2002, um, now, Manningham Borough was uh, appointed early 2002 as head of MI5. She privately made it quite clear at the time they were annoyed with the Americans because the Americans refused to tell the British where some of the prisoners who they wanted to, who MI5 wanted to uh, question, where they were. She said they didn't know, for example, about the, uh, the alleged mastermind of the 9-11 bombings, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, was... Uh, waterboarded, tortured, waterboarded over a hundred times. Manning Abura says she did not know that until after she left MI5 in 2007. How do her comments sit with um, the statements that we've had from ministers and from the current MI5 head, Jonathan Evans? Well, Jonathan Evans is a uh, much more closed individual, really. And, and the, 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 kind of, the two kind of statements MI5 come out with, uh, uh, one is that they abhor torture, like uh, all ministers uh, echo this statement, of course. And secondly, they, they concede just one thing. They concede that they were slow to appreciate that the Americans were torturing people, mistreating people in the way that would be unlawful if Britain uh, was uh, was doing the same thing. Not only unlawful, if British officers were doing the same thing, but, um, but they just simply didn't they were so to, to actually appreciate they were doing it at all, which, uh, as we keep on saying, um, all you have to do is read the American press, let alone the British press. And uh, so that, that, is, that, that is puzzling. It's a defensive thing. I think the way she, Eliza Manning and Buller, is blaming the Americans. Maybe it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a way to pass the buck, to blame the Americans. But what was clearly a deeply embarrassing, after all, the British and the Americans share intelligence more than any other countries they have a special relationship on intelligence the 
British rely on uh, getting intelligence from the Americans so much, and here's our closest ally doing these nasty things, uh, torturing people. And that was really, it, 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 when they first heard about it, whenever it was, it was extremely um, embarrassing and irritating and annoying, say the least, to MI5. The question then is, what do they do about it? And, and, when they, and, and what do they do about it? And when, and when they um, protested the Americans and, and how strong were those protests? Richard Norton Taylor. My name's John Dennis. You're listening to Guardian Daily. Almost 500 plants and animals have become extinct in England in the last 2,000 years, most of them in the last 200 years. That's according to a wide-ranging audit of England's conservation records by the government's conservation agency, Natural England. Its chief scientist is Tom Tew. This extinction is not just historical, it's, it's going on to the present day. Indeed, seven species have gone in the last 10 years, um, three moths, two beetles, a moss and an orchid. So um, we're still losing our wildlife and that, and that is depressing. And some species that we used to see a lot of, like sparrows, are now fewer in number. It's, it's odd, actually. You look at things like common frogs, common toads, um, house sparrows, um, common otters, um, lots of things which um, our grandfathers and their grandfathers would have found to be very common animals in the countryside are now actually very rare. Um, There's two big bursts of extinction really in the last 200 years. One around the turn of the 20th century when the Victorians really got to grips with land management and there were a lot of gamekeepers around. And then a second peak just after the Second War, when, of course, there was a huge intensification of agriculture. Um, but there is a background level throughout the last 200 years, which is certainly well beyond anything we might normally expect. And what can we do about it? Well, there's the million dollar question. Um, we're, via this re- report, Natural England is really calling for a step change in our actions and a step change in our ambitions. It would be a, a real shame if we if we looked our grandchildren in the eye and, and told them that we went to more and more meetings to discuss this problem rather than did anything about it. So um, we need to think big. We need to think on a, on a landscape scale. We need to make more room for wildlife. Um, For sure, we need to protect um, our existing sites, but we need to join them up as well because climate change is really threatening the ability of species to cling on to sites. We need to create some new habitats. Um, I think above all else, we need to make sure that our farming and fishing is sustainable because a lot of these species have gone extinct from those ecosystems and we need to deal with invasive species and illegal persecution. There's no shortage of things to do. Uh, Actually, the big message is that um, we need to think much bigger than we have been because the scale of the problem, I think, is bigger than we ever thought it was. Dr Tom Tew from Natural England. Some police forces face being branded racist by the Equalities Watchdog because of their excessive use of stop and search powers against people from ethnic minorities. The Guardians learned that a report from the Commission later this month will say that police forces will face action unless they promise to change. Vikram Dodd has the details. There's a few parts to this. The first part is they've gone through the statistics on stops and searches and it's been a trend for a long time but it's still there that uh, Afro-Caribbean people are nationally seven times more likely to be stopped and searched than white people 
Asians on average two times more likely to be stopped and searched. But when you break it down by force, you see a number of disparities. So some forces are over 10 times more likely to stop Afro-Caribbeans. The phrase that's used is disproportionality, which means how likely a force is to stop black or Asian people compared to white people. So that's the first thing. The second thing that the Commission has done in their statistical part of this is look at the frequency at which different police forces use stop and search. And that, again, leads to an interesting picture. So instead of this being an argument between, say, community groups saying you stop and search is too much, what the Commission have done is gone and looked at different police forces and how they use the power. And the one which stands out to the Commission is the Metropolitan Police, which is also Britain's biggest force, which uses the power far more frequently than other forces in urban areas. So, so the extent that they skew the national figures? Well, that's for two reasons. One, the Met uses it so much, I mean, five times as likely to use it as the an equivalent force, say, the West Midlands force, which polices a similar sort of area. Uh, and secondly, because so much of the Afro-Caribbean population in Britain lives in London. Now, what is the Commission going to do about this? That is a very interesting question. First of all, they're going to publish a report reasonably soon in which they lay all of this out. And what they appear to be doing, we're being told, is they will write to forces and say, this is what we've found. Their conclusion is that this may well be discriminatory and breaking the laws and the police's duty to treat different races and different groups equally. And so you've got to to change. And if they don't, or if they fail to come up with uh, sufficient action plans of change, they can use their legal powers and commence enforcement action. Vikram Dodd. Today's edition of Guardian Daily was produced by Andy Duckworth and Phil Maynard. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening.